The following stories are shared consensually by everyday people living with bipolar disorder. As a friendly note, we are not acting as licensed therapists or providing therapeutic services. We are providing a safe space for people with bipolar disorder to share their stories uninterrupted. Stories may mention the use of drugs, alcohol, and or suicidality. If you feel triggered and in need of help, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. My name is Sabrina. And I'm Gritty Gem, and this is the Bipolar AF Podcast. Well, I guess we can start. Um, my name is Sammy. I am 26 years old. I'm turning 27 next week. Um, I was diagnosed when I was 21 while I was in university. And I got diagnosed because I was um, in a manic phase throughout university. And I was switching majors like it was candy. Like I would go from English degree to sociology degree to psychology. And it just... It was I was all over the place because I was in my impulses were kind of taking in control. Um, and of course, university culture is all about party culture. So I was always drinking and doing drugs to self-medicate because it was easy to numb myself from not only um, mental health in general, like the traumas that I've gone through in the past, but also because I I didn't know what mania meant back then. Um, I just felt what I felt. So when I finally got to see a psychiatrist, I was diagnosed with bipolar and everything finally made sense when I w- once I learned more about what bipolar is. Um, I started taking um, various different medications to see what it worked. Um, and after, I guess, six years now, I finally found one that worked six years later. Um, And it was a trip to find out what medication worked for me. And, you know, the ups and downs from different medications scared me because I was always scared to switch to another medication because of pivotal times in my life. Um, During exam times, I didn't want to switch medications during finals because then I would do bad on my final because I might have slept in because it made me groggy in the morning. Um, but finally I found quetiapine It's an antipsychotic and a mood stabilizer. I think it's called Divalprox, and, um, it works for me, but I'm also a recovering addict. So there's a huge stigma on medication already. And something that I do, uh, when I used to work in the field, uh, in mental health, and when I tell other people who don't understand taking medication for psychiatric conditions is that, and having an addiction on top of that is that I call it my legal addiction. And the reason I say legal addiction is because they're prescribed medications that I still take when I'm anxious or at night to go to bed or to quote unquote medicate myself, but it's working. And I'm being overseen by various medical health professionals a psychiatrist, a, a psychiatric nurse, um, a counselor, dot, 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 et cetera. So I'm not self-medicating myself like I did with alcohol and drugs when I was in high school, or not high school, sorry, uh, in university. I am doing it in a way that is safe for me. Um, but something that I noticed is that even with my medication uh, throughout university, throughout the years, and even now, I still 
I still fall back into my addiction and I still fall back into my mania. And usually it's my addiction that triggers my mania. The cycle is I get anxious. I get really, really anxious about a stressor in my life. Um, and then I want to cope by using alcohol and drugs. And then I forget my medication regimen. Like I stop taking my antipsychotic. I stop taking my mood stabilizers. And then my mania comes out. And then I start to, you know, feel on top of the world. I don't need my meds because I feel euphoria right now. And then I start doing things that, you know, look fun, are fun in the moment. And that does include hypersexuality. That does mean using sex and drugs as a coping mechanism. That means starting to say things and do things that feel impulsive in the moment. And then when I finally kind of, quote unquote, get out of it or come out of it and feel that crash, I start to feel this uh, shame and this guilt for everything that I did during my mania. And it's kind of stuff that I can't take back. It's stuff that I have to take accountability for. And you know what? That's the hardest part is when you start taking accountability for things that you regret you start feeling shame and guilt for everything that you just did during your mania, which makes me fall into an addiction because that is a stressor again. So do you see that cycle? It's just a cycle of stressor, addiction, shame, and guilt. Stressor, addiction, shame, and guilt. And even when I'm taking meds, that is happening. And it scares me because I feel like I'm walking on eggshells every single day. I know that I feel fine now, but a snap and then I could, and you know, what's even worse is that medication is sometimes just a, a short period thing. And what I mean by that is they can stop working instantly. My brain chemistry might just, you know, wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, I don't feel like your quetiapine should work for you anymore. And that has happened to me. That's why I've gone through so many different antipsychotics, SSRIs, every single thing that you could think of. Because, you know, like my brain just randomly didn't want to work anymore and say, this medication's not for you anymore. And then I run back to the psychiatrist asking for the next dose of whatever legal drug they want to give me. And then it starts this whole cycle all over again. And it feels like I can never win with my bipolar. And, you know, on top of that, there's all these other concurrent disorders. But of course, in this podcast, we're just talking about bipolar. But of course, when you have concurrent disorders, they kind of like to play into the bipolar as well. Um, so that that's something that I'm really struggling with is like that cycle. It feels inescapable, even when I'm doing good in my life. Um, something that I really hate as well is when I have my shame and guilt moments, I'm going to say this because I know this is going to be in the public, but like, I feel like I've hurt people in the past and there's things that I wish I could take back because when I'm, when I'm in my mania, I don't care about anything because I'm trying to cope with whatever I'm feeling. And that's what I want people to understand is that for me personally, I'm not going to speak for everyone who has bipolar, but for me, when I'm in my mania, all I care about is my fix, whether that be a drug or sex fix or 
that feeling of euphoria and impulsivity fix. And if I hurt people in the in the process by saying something I regret or doing something I regret, that I will regret later, I mean, I will for sure regret it and feel my shame and guilt and sorry later. I will feel accountability later, but I swear during my euphoria, my brain is just not capable of trying to take accountability or say sorry, because I don't know. It's just not how it works. And I don't know how to explain that. And that stamp of it's happened and you can't take back the past, it haunts me. You know, it haunts me every day that I've done certain things that I regret in my mania. And I can't just use bipolar as an example, as an excuse because not like our society is in this weird um, paradigm of, you know, we're all about mental health. We're all about moving forward. Yet when someone says or uses quote unquote mental health as an excuse, quote unquote, all of a sudden mental health is not an excuse and you have to take accountability, which is 100% true in some cases. But I don't think people understand that like sometimes mental health has to be an excuse because not everyone is given the opportunity to heal. Our systems, social, healthcare, political, are not set up to support people. They're set up for a certain few, a privileged few, mind, to succeed. And me as a queer person of color, it's hard for me to access the resources that I need. And it's scary because one of the scariest experiences that I've had is, I'm sorry, I tear up a little bit whenever I have to say this, is because I've gone to the hospital multiple times as, asking for help. I've gone to the hospital after attempting suicide and I was discharged the same night to go home as deemed safe. Whereas I've seen my white, cis, heteronormative friends have a panic attack and go on the stabilization unit for five days and get all these resources and psychiatrists and everything handed to them. And I am deemed safe after an attempted suicide? How does that make sense? And people don't see that part of people who are suffering with any mental illness. Bipolar, for me, is the biggest one. And then when I, like like I said earlier, when I try to say my mania is my excuse, my mania is my excuse, I have tried to ask for help. I have gone to the hospital multiple times and I've never gotten the help I needed. So it's not in my control. Please listen to me when I say it's not in my control when I do things that I regret. And that is my story that I am trying to get the help that I need. And I am now 100% going to say I have gotten to a point where I am stabilized to an extent. And I only say to an extent because, like I said earlier, you never know when you can snap. But I am so blessed to have the people that I have around me today and this time. And I am proud of them for still standing by me after all the shit that I've put my friends and people through because of my bipolar and I apologize to anyone listening to this that I've also hurt and I've but like again there's so many things out of my control that 
I am trying so hard to seek help for. But like I said, sometimes the social political, sociopolitical climate just isn't allowing me to. And I don't want to keep having to use my mania as an excuse. I don't want to keep having to blame the social systems and the healthcare system for my excuse. I don't want to do that. I want to take accountability, but it's hard when everything is contradicting itself, basically. I'm contradicting myself, and then so it's the system around me. So when if you're listening to this and you need support as a queer person of color, the only advice that I can give you is probably find a way to advocate your voice, get your voice out there, or find someone to help you advocate for yourself. Use the people who are privileged around you as much as the system uses us and then puts us and shuns us away. It's time to do that. We can't let the system keep breaking us down. Because the only reason I got the supports that I have today is because I had my friends support me after me telling them my story and saying, I am oppressed. Help me. And they all did. And they all stepped up to the plate and used their privilege to support me and used their resiliency to support me and even reminded me that I am a resilient person for doing what I have done so far for my healing. So thank you. Thank you for listening to me today. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It takes a lot of courage to be able to share that. I really appreciate you guys listening. I was really releasing as well to finally to get my voice out there. I'm a little terrified for people to hear it, but at the same time, I hope people do. You are so brave. You really are. Yeah. And I'm just going to say like, there's a, there's a lack of, you know, colored individual, like color therapists, like people just of color that are therapists in general. And there's a, it makes the mental health system even worse because it's mostly for hetero white caucasian heteronormative like clientele is and they're not Mm -hmm. understanding and the therapists really should reflect and understand the deep cultural um aspects that are part of a society or culture that uh, a community that i could never understand that so i i truly understand that like you're really lacking the, the 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 mental health support because it's just not there because because people can't afford like people can't afford to go into this field or mm-hmm. these fields of social services when they're yeah. so desperately needed because there's no reflection of that population then mm-hmm. there's it it's a breakdown of society it's a breakdown of culture it's a breakdown of like what is really needed for social services in general so you know as you say that is it should be really well aware or should be well known that, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, that it is really detrimental to the mental health and the long-term well-being of people, of communities, especially, um, you know, <clears throat> of queer individuals and people of color. It's just, it's, you don't see yourself. So it's hard to get that, have a, a deep understanding and have the conversations, those conversations, because I could never understand what you go through. I could never understand the way that someone who's in your community understands. And the the fact that you don't have that mental health, like it, you're in Canada. So there, here's, here lies my question. 
Um, mm -hmm. How is the mental health support in Canada? Because in, in, in the United States, it's much better, but it's still very much of a struggle. So is, it's a, is it readily available through the, the actual um, healthcare system itself? Um, so <laughs> this is going to get a little pro political, but, um, we, Canada is one of those countries that prides itself on being a peacekeeping state and we have like universal healthcare, dot, 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 et cetera. But like when you actually kind of go through the system and realize, um, that how the sociopolitical systems work, we are not like the healthcare, the men mental health care system in Canada is horrible. There is waitlist after waitlist. Like you can be on a waitlist for over a year. Um, you, we, the only kind of way that you can get into uh, some care or access care instantly is one if you hire private care, uh, like a private psychiatrist or a private social worker, blah blah blah, blah etc. Or um, you are in immediate need or immediate danger to your life. So uh, many times, like, the best way to get access to care right away is go to the emergency room at the hospital. Uh, you're probably suicidal. And that's when they will finally offer you some treatment or offer you some resource instantly because you're a threat to your life or others. Um, other than that, you're just going to be put on a wait list and you wait for your call. Um, and again, on top of that, it gets it gets more systemic because, like I said, I'm a queer person of color. and that adds more intersectional intersectional barriers uh, that not other people see, like you said, like a white cis heteronormative person. Um, so yeah, it just gets deeper and deeper. And the more we de the more you deconstruct it, um, and this is a very harsh statement to say, but we're no better than the states. I've read a lot of discourse online um, regarding like the similarities to the U.S. and Canada as well. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of, people of people who do that. Yeah, and like a lot of people will like fight you on this, but you will notice that the people who defend the quote unquote universal healthcare system and dot 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 etc. are people in positions of privilege. They will be like, "Oh my god, like what do you mean? I got a psychiatrist right away, but your insurance covered that psychiatrist, so of course you got it right away." <laughs> Um, you know, whereas like people like me who are transitioning jobs or, uh, worked part-time jobs or as people who work in social services, we work casual positions, you know, and get like casual shifts once in a while. Um, those type of positions don't get healthcare. So in that case, you have to kind of go to the hospital and get on that wait list somehow. So yeah, it's really interesting to see that discourse as well. I mean, I mean now is it your your age of your your brain has just finally matured at 26 you're just now at that point mm -hmm. do you feel that you're starting to have better coping skills or emotional regulation or is it something that you're definitely starting to work on or be more aware of um just because there's still a lot of chaos up until like you know you really hit 25 26 that's when the the full realization of your brain do you feel like now that you're at this age and have a diagnosis and have gone through five years of, um, you know, five years of it, uh, living your daily life and having and knowing and understanding of it, do you feel that like you're on a better, you, you're emotionally regulated a little bit better or 
or do you feel like that there's still like a lot of chaos and there's still like a lot of work in your brain that you haven't fully understood um it's interesting that you asked me that um i was just talking about that with my therapist and uh about something similar with that and to be quite honest um I feel like I have started to take care of myself more, not because of my age, but more as because I of the experiences that I had um, recently and throughout the years. So it's not like a feeling of like, oh, um, I'm 27 or almost 27 and I should get my shit together, but more as like, a, oh gosh, look at all those toxic things that's happened in the past or... Um, this is a really major event in my life that hurt me. This is why I should have my thing together by now. So it's kind of a moment of reflection. But, you know, to be quite honest, you never know. It could That moment of reflection could be because my brain finally says, hey, I'm fully developed. Let's sit down and have a moment to talk about this. Or in inner dialogue, I mean. <laughs> Especially with jobs. I always ask about jobs because jobs oh, are hard to keep. Uh-huh. The jobs, the jobs are harder to keep. People have like questions about disclosing. How do you mm-hmm. feel about disclosing your illness? And when you, if you, if you decide to, how do you do it? But if you decide not to, how do you deal with your mental health and keeping it separate from interfering or interfering with your your work? Uh, do you have a tendency to not like bosses? Kind of just give like an <laughs> overview of maybe if you're your history of like just in general of like how you feel about it yeah so it's actually a really interesting uh, question that you asked because of my transition of employment phase that I'm going in right now and um over the years I worked in various different fields but I mostly worked in mental health and I worked in mental health homelessness addiction um social emotional learning and educating for children dot 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 etc and I noticed that when I worked in caregiving fields, I was more able to be discl- or more able dis- to disclose my bipolar illness to a boss or someone who needs to know for whatever reason. Whereas when I picked up a seasonal job at, uh, do you guys have the body shop in the states? Yeah. Okay. So like, when if I picked up like a retail or sales oriented job or a job that has nothing to do with caregiving then in those positions, I felt like I had to kind of keep my illness to myself and not really disclose why I'm acting or doing certain things. Um, yeah, so like a lot of, like my most recent bosses in my in the caregiving fields that I worked in, they knew because whenever I had like a manic moment or et cetera, I said, I would tell them, oh, sorry, like my meds aren't working or hey, my bipolar is acting up. I'm really sorry that I didn't or I didn't show up or blah, 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 blah. Whereas, um, like, when I was working in retail and I had, like, a moment of mania, I would have to, like, somehow formulate a plan to not tell and disclose about it, but also be fully transparent at the same time. And it's totally, like... A paradoxing situation and it really did hurt to be in those situations so like transitioning to this new employment that I hopefully will be getting I'm scared I'm terrified of like you know how am I going to disclose my symptoms when they're acting up but also keep them to myself because being professional in 
after so many years of, you know, having bosses that are so understanding and loving, how am I transitioning to a place where I have to be full of boundaries and respect other people in my own boundaries? It's scary. <laughs> I imagine it is. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's best been... wishes regarding the new job. I'll have my fingers crossed for you. Thank you. I, if, if everything works out, I will email you that it's confirmed and oh. what it is. But right now, I, I just want to keep it to myself and hopefully be like, okay, you know what? Only good thoughts, no jinxing. <laughs> All right. You're right. All right. I'll wait. Yeah. We'll or if you don't email me, then no worries. Whatever <laughs> you want. Even if you get the job and like you're just like, I don't really care about telling Sabrina. Oh my god, um, no, I will totally have to like let you guys know about this because this is an amazing opportunity to be, to be um on this podcast. It was <laughs> it was it is really fun. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, we're still we're still trying to figure things out. Um but I do have a question for you. I lied earlier. Apparently I did have a question. Um oh, my bad. Um, <laughs> um so speaking on the coping skills and neurological development earlier in conversation, mm-hmm. how do you communicate with your loved ones now versus the past because I know you mentioned that in your in your story um yeah so now that I've taken ownership of the concurrent illnesses that I have and also accepted the reality that you know things have happened in the past and you need to learn to forgive yourself uh forgive others and move on in your healing um I will usually let them know if something is wrong. I will write, straight up tell them like, hey, um, my my meds aren't working right now. I'm anxious. My mania is creeping up on me. I need support. Uh, just really be really transparent with my loved ones. But I'm going to be honest. I'm worried and scared about my future relationships. I'm worried about getting um, a partner and I'm worried about um, making new friends sometimes um, because bipolar has always been portrayed in media and in society as flip the switch gone crazy. And unfortunately, because of my, my previous experiences in the past few years, I have, quote unquote, gone crazy. So like, it's kind of this confirmation bias of, you know, like you're confirming the stigma that's about bipolar because of the actions that you've committed, Sammy. So I get scared in new relationships and stuff. But with my current ones, the people who've been there and supported me, very much transparent. Um, I'm going to actually go into meds because meds, um, you're talking about non-compliance and I'm guilty of non-compliance all the time. I always talk about it, but... (laughs) um what why do you what when people talk to you about it what do you respond to the number one metaphor i get is if you're a diabetic you know why like you would have to take your insulin every day that's the number one and like a, a, a metaphor analogy that i always get so when people do ask you like why aren't you on your meds or why do you go off your meds like what's the reasoning what do you tell people well in the past, I would blame my addiction or I would uh, get really angry and say, it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> but it, but nowadays, I mostly just let them know that 
they're working and they're working. So when I take them, it's because I want to continue to stay stable. But if I miss them, it's because I either one genuinely forgot or two, I'm going through something and I would, I actually usually tell my, either like my roommates upstairs or my friends to keep me accountable for my meds. I say, Hey, like, can, if I ever tell you, or if you ever suspect that I did not take my medication, can you say, are you on your meds or can you take your meds? And I won't take it offensively. I will go, I will tell you the truth. And have any of them moved forward and like asked you that over time? Oh yeah, there's been multiple times where like I did something out of the ordinary and like a a friend or a roommate said, are you on your meds right now? And I'm just like, oh shit, I didn't take it. And then I go downstairs to my room and grab it. And I always have my quetiapine on me because it's actually my PRN. So like I take it, I take some throughout the day, like if I'm having panic or I see the mania creeping up on me. Um, so yeah, if I'm with loved ones, they know to just be like, are you on your meds right now? <laughs> and no, I won't wonderful. take it offensively, yeah. No, that's um, wonderful also, support. Yeah, it's amazing. And I really appreciate that they're uh, they're able to do that. And I'm able to feel comfortable for them to do that for me. But there is one thing. I actually posted a Instagram post about my meds. So I take a bunch of supplements and a bunch of meds. So like, you know, I just laid them all out. And I said, just letting you know, someone with all these meds is still a normal person. I posted that on my Instagram because it's true. No one has a right to say, you know, like, oh, you're medicated. That means you're broken. No. Like, you get an STD, you go get tested, and you go get cured. But unfortunately, there's some, like HIV, for example, that you need to take meds for the rest of your life. I am the same way with my mental illness. I will have to take meds for a very, very long time because it's what keeps me cured. So that's how I kind of explain it to people. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, There's a lot of stigma surrounding medication. Uh, it's really unfair. And then there's so much uh, hesitancy that people have too to begin medications that could yeah. positive, which is understandable to some extent, not necessarily for the the negatives of like the stigma per se, but like, you know, side effects. I understand people's hesitancy around that. That's not what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Um, Just like the concept of being a crazy person because you take an SSRI for depression or something. You know what I mean? Like, and like, let's be honest here. Psychiatry has, does not have a positive history. It has a very dark history. Like, like not even 70, not 70 years ago, sorry, not even 50 years ago, being gay was a disorder in ni- and it wasn't removed from the DSM-4 until like 1971 or two, I think it was. And yep. so like, of course, if like, you know, our parents were still alive when, <laughs> sorry, when um like the DSM said so many things that are like totally acceptable nowadays. So mm-hmm. we're, we're not really that far in psychiatric medicine. But that doesn't mean that what works shouldn't uh, should be shouldn't be taken accountable for. What I mean by that is, what's work, it works. Continue. Absolutely, there's a ton of social workers, um, clinical social workers who use the DSM, and they look at things and like all the diagnoses, and they'll look for things that are just off or skewed off, and that's why it's just constantly evolving. 
you know, and being updated because some things are just not, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they just don't make sense. <laughs> they just don't make sense. Yeah, I guess that's like an hundred percent. They just There's don't make sense. Disorders, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, like the disorders are like pretty valid. Some of them. I mean, not the ones where it's just like, oh, you're a woman and you're depressed. Like back in the day when they used to just like, what are they called? Mm. The hysteria. I forget what it's called. I think yeah. it's called hysteria or something. And it's just like, no, that's depression. Oh my god, men get it too. Like, um, <laughs> so, um. So but I think even that's just like, where that comes from. Yeah. yeah like that stigma even, comes from that. Oh, absolutely. And just like everybody, they're just like, oh, they're going to send me to the loony bin um, because mm-hmm. I'm having suicidal ideation. Well, actually, not even necessarily. You know what I mean? Because there's like different, I'm sure, you know, I'm not going to get too into it on the podcast, but like sometimes with certain patients, no, you don't just say, hey, let's section you, you know, like you actually talk to them first and see if that's reasonable. Um, there's a whole thing that I, I could go on and rant about that forever. But um, my point was just like, even here. like, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, my point is like the, the features within like the DSM sometimes as well. It's just like, um, why is that even in there? Like, that's wrong. Um, 100%. Yeah. Sorry, I, I ramble. That's why I usually oh, leave no. it to Jen. That ramble was totally understandable. Like we got each other. Let's. Like, all I wanted to, like, I guess all in all I want to say about that question is that, like, the only reason uh, why people get so stigma, uh, get, like, all that stigma on medication is because psychiatric medicine hasn't evolved that long. Yes. And it is scary that only just, like, 30, 40 years ago there were things happening that are now seen as, like, inhumane to even think about. But at point. All in all, from what I would say is, if it works, it works. If it helps, it helps. Continue. Yes, one hundred percent. I agree with you. I'm gonna ask one more question, and we're gonna we're gonna end right there because we we stop around forty five minutes. But um, yeah. your hypersexuality, because I think this is probably one of the one of the more unknown, mm-hmm. like one one of the more unknown. And trust me, I couldn't tell you my number. Could never tell you my number. <laughs> and that's honestly the truth and there's I, I have a lot of stories i got like i couldn't like again but the hypersexuality is something that's very common very taboo because people don't want to admit that they have they'll sleep with seven people in seven days like it's not mm-hmm. i'm not saying that i mean i have done that yes there's there could i tell you all their names no but like um and in that in that hypersexuality do you feel like that you do take extra precaution to protect yourself in that those sexual situations or do you have a tendency to maybe not be as protective um but what are you doing to like like share make us i guess maybe share to whatever extent you're comfortable with sharing your your hypersexuality um and what and how that's affected your life and affected your relationships and affected just your general well-being as well all right so you're talking to a very sex positive person i am also a ex-sex worker um to be quite honest my bipolar mania is what got me into sex work in the first place when i used to be one and um 
although I support that feel in industry and all the people that are in it, because you know what? Your body, your choice, continue. Sex work is the oldest job in the book since the beginning of time. Um, when I was, whenever I am in my manic phases and I am in that hype and I do have hypersexuality, I noticed that, yes, my protection confidence is gone. <laughs> so I don't really use protection in those moments. And then I regret it horribly when I finally get into my depressive state or when I'm coming out of my mania and finally take my meds. And then it goes into this whole anxiety of going and getting tested and then being told that like you're, you, you know, you have like a 12 week incubation period of HIV and it's like, oh my God. And now I have to wait 12, uh, 12 weeks to fully like know that I don't have it, even though I'm on prep, which I don't know if you guys have prep fully available yet down there, but um, here we do. But even then, like the stigma on HIV comes to, like comes into me and I'm just like, oh my gosh, why am I feeling so bad about this? I tell people to be sex positive and I tell people HIV is like something that we can manage nowadays you equals you undetectable equals untransmittable but why am i now feeling so why am i contradicting myself which makes me feel even worse so it's kind of this like cycle of like oh my god why did i do this to myself and then um which kind of like makes me go into these states of like never wanting to have sex again and then when I'm in my like depressive state or when like right now when I'm medicated and quote unquote stable, um, I, I have no desire for sex at all. Like I don't want it and I don't even want to be touched by a human. And then all of a sudden the mania kicks in and then all that pent up um, like I guess you could say horniness just comes right back out. And then it's like a it's a weird cycle of pent up horniness and then crazy mania sex and then it's a cycle again so yeah just to answer your question like I totally feel that and yes I have also had sex with multiple people multiple people in a night <laughs> and then came home and said what the fuck did I just do and that, it's kind of scary because like in the queer community, there's a, like, I would call it an epidemic. I don't know if it's declared an epidemic, but like an epidemic of um, something called party and play. It's like you use drugs while you have sex. Like you can do ecstasy and have sex or meth and have sex. And it like enhances the sexual experience. Um, and it's like a, it's a weird, but interesting phenomenon that's happening in the queer community. And when you are manic, you will do anything. And if someone offers you a pipe, it's like, oh, it's really weird. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's a weird cycle. And then it intersects with all the other things that are happening in your life when it comes to mania as well. Sorry. Um, I wanted, I wanted to say one thing since we're talking mm -hmm. about hypersexuality. Um, are you on TikTok at all, Sammy? no i'm not <laughs> you're not okay but no, stay off of tiktok it will literally eat you and spit you out and then it's again its own cycle of how i practice um, don't ever go on that um, <laughs> but i did want to mention just because like what your story was just reminding me there's a current trend going on on tiktok um mm -hmm. where 
well specifically i'm seeing like the bipolar community like kind of take over it um because they're bringing awareness to hypersexuality during mania um and you know of course it's just like darker humor in the sense of just like so basically there's a song they post a picture of themselves and then they put a a through z the alphabet right and (laughs) so then they'll um they'll for how many people with the name starting with that letter um they Uh give jen have you seen it i feel like i should mention it because they're bringing uh, awareness to hypersexuality and that being such a a prominent thing like within being bipolar so i had to mention it sorry and so basically they'll just like put a check marker an x um for how many of like that letter and so Mm. then people are just like whoa like what do you mean like or like this one wins or whatever but i think people are coming to like it's just bringing it to the light if that makes sense yeah and actually there's one final comment that i would make not only from not about not only about the like the hypersexuality but in general when it comes to meeting people during mania i have met some of the most amazing people during my mania that i regret meeting because i wished they met me when i was my authentic non-mania self and I I hope like whoever's listening to this doesn't know doesn't exactly know who I am, but I have met celebrities. I have met you know people who are very powerful, um, people very up there in the social hierarchy, socioeconomic hierarchy, dot dot dot, etc. And people and like you know got to know them on a personal level, but never got the chance to let them see this. Sammy that's talking to you today because I probably made a fool of myself. You know, probably got too drunk and crazy, probably uh, said something really weird, probably made myself look like a fool. And it's annoying because that goes back into that whole regret, shame and guilt cycle that I'm talking about, because these are people who, you know, start to notice that or start the conversation and you know get to become these people that I really do fall in love with not like in a, a um I guess you could say platonic way I mean more in like a they're actually really cool humans that I want to be friends with but they don't want to be friends with me because they're like who is this quote-unquote crazy person talking to me so that is one thing that I would end off in is that like I wish people knew how to tell if someone is manic so that they can give them a second chance and it's hurt me because there's people that I've I've met that I, I don't know if it's just my mania, but like people that I would consider like the love of my life because they were very similar to something I would idealize as someone I want as a partner. But then that person probably thinks I'm weird now because of how weird I was during my mania. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I'm gonna. We're gonna let you go. We don't want to take any more of your time, but it's been amazing to hear more uninterrupted stories from everyday people living with bipolar disorder. Please follow us on our Instagram at bipolar af podcast, and you can check us out on our website at bipolaraf podcast dot com. Thanks for listening.